0: A lot of businesses will fail. In fact, we know that from a startup perspective, almost all businesses that start will fail before they have any meaningful success. People don't accuse those startup founders of being scammers. They don't accuse them of of rugging them with their money. They say, here's an investment. It's a a measured bet.
1: Here folks, and welcome to the Blockchain New Zealand podcast. I'm Jeff Nicey, and my guest today is Steve Vallis. Steve is the Managing Director of Blockchain APAC, previously the CEO of Blockchain Australia, and an all-around LinkedIn wizard. Steve was visiting Auckland, meeting with nearly everyone in every aspect of blockchain to discuss aligning incentives and shared interests between Australia and New Zealand. In this conversation, we touch on the scam narrative within crypto, how it's affected the NFT space and crypto marketing, and of course, regulation and where we're at in Asia Pacific. Before we get to Steve, a quick word from our sponsor. The Blockchain New Zealand podcast is brought to you by Easy Crypto. Five years ago, a passionate bunch of Kiwis created Easy Crypto in New Zealand to enable Kiwis and others to buy and sell cryptocurrency. The Easy Crypto website is simple and straightforward. They have heaps of great educational content that caters to both beginners and experts and are very transparent about feeds. You can buy crypto with New Zealand dollars or with your credit card and get crypto sent directly to your wallet. Investing in cryptocurrency can, of course, be risky, so always do your own research. Visit easycrypto.com to start your crypto journey today. Steve, you uh, you picked a perler of a day to come here to the City of Sales. Uh, early impressions on your trip to New Zealand so far?
0: Echoing what we heard and saw last time, there is a shared experience to be had. So within the first couple of meetings of the day, people are talking about very similar opportunities and very similar sort of challenges. And I always assume it's sunny in Auckland. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I guess this is a typical day for me in Auckland. Lots of lots of friendly and embracing all right, conversations all right. and
1: faces. Good to hear. Um, so let's get started by talking about this meme that I sent you right before you came. So it's uh, it's one of my favorite of the past few days. Obviously, a lot has happened recently with uh, activity in, in banking and in America and with potential legislative implications moving forward. Uh, And so, you know, it's the classic superhero, and he's got two options. And it says, all banks are a scam, put your money in crypto. And the other option is that all crypto is a scam, put your money in banks, right? And he's like sweating it out. Uh, And, you know, Elon posted this, so it got huge uh, visibility. Uh, So like, everything is a scam. What, what, What do you think? Are we... Further down the line towards things being a scam, potentially that's why we've had some seen some banking failure and things are breaking. Um, or is this just you know the next news cycle and we'll forget about it next week? I think whatever you think
0: has been reinforced by the events of the last week or two. So uh, the context is what I've been speaking to people about for the last five or six years. And I start people at opposite ends of the spectrum. So a- akin to what that meme says, I say to people, if you're a true believer and you think there is a Uh, there is a world that is a much better space where you can be a crypto libertarian and everyone gets out of your way, that's a conversation you should have. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's business as usual that is marginally improved by process. And I say, which part of the (laughs) spectrum are you on? And then people tend to self-calibrate and then I I change the conversation accordingly. So I think both of those things are equally true or equally untrue, uh, as the case may be and has been for the last five or six years in my experience.
1: All right, let's talk about what you have heard about these recent banking failures. uh, You know, we're here to sort of center the conversation around blockchain, perhaps uh, different perspectives between New Zealand and Australia. Are we seeing some spillover? Are we going to see some spillover down here to the Southern Hemisphere?
0: I think there's natural conservatism that's here in the Southern Hemisphere. We've got a robust banking system. We're pretty conservative in relation to it. I think it's reflective of the way we invest and the way we embrace new technology, which is we're slow. And one of the jokes I've had recently, people talk about being fast followers. And I say, it's hard to be a fast follower when you follow people who aren't that fast. So it continues to be the case. I think we'll get the ripples of this conversation, but we haven't invested in the upside to suffer as much on the downside. So I think it's a little bit reflective of what happened when the GFC hit. You know, we felt a few tremors, but other jurisdictions around the world really suffered when there was that financial calamity back in uh, 2008. So I think it's likely the case again, that it it just scares us straight a little bit. Um, and there'll just be natural consequences that are conservatism um,
1: in investment and a willingness to embrace this stuff that flows. Well, what did you say there? We haven't invested in the upside to, can you say that again?
0: Yeah, so we haven't invested in the upside of this technology. The reality of when we when we talk about emerging tech in general, it's not often that people will describe Australia and I can't speak to New Zealand experience, but in, in, in Australia to say, yeah, we were there early. We're rarely there early. So what okay. we're doing is we're following in other investments when it comes to things like, Web3 or Emerging Tech, they were very late in the piece in Australia. The VCs in Australia largely ignored the space for most of the, the building of the cycle. And then late through the influence of a small number of VCs who are more willing to say this is an emerging technology class and an investment class we look to participate in. When they moved, others moved with them. But for the most part... Uh, they stayed absent from these conversations in a meaningful way for probably 70 or 80% of the, uh, of the rise of the, uh, of the sector.
1: Things in crypto move pretty fast, right? By late, do you mean like three years ago or like six years ago uh, when you started to see a lot more activity?
0: The activity from my perspective in Australia has been uh, a low level hum over a long period of time. We tend to be guided by what traditional businesses do and we tend to be guided by government. And government historically, up until the recent change of government, they were also late to the party. I mean, the biggest advocates in the previous government were not people that held senior portfolios. So it was chatter around the fringes. So it was never a mainstream topic per se. It was always those that expressed some interest. And it was largely driven by, I think, the pressure that happened outside of Australia, which is part of the reason, again, heading back to New Zealand is to get a sense of conversations that happen outside of our own shores. We talk to each other too much about this technology in a way that doesn't add into um, the value that says, is this something we should be looking at and meaningfully sort of investing in? So leaving Australia is kind of where we're at. And I think uh, that's that's been one of the challenges that we've had and will face now, again, as money dries up and interest dries up and people move on to generative AI as the flavour of the month or some other AI element, you kind of leave behind what are potentially really great opportunities because you've moved on to the next, uh, the next
1: big thing. So we see here quite a few... Quite a lot of activity in little pockets, of course, there's this like bias when you're in the space and paying lots of, lots of attention. You think, oh, there's heaps here. And I think generally people that are building things are then flowing to Australia pretty quick, straight away, crypto or otherwise. And so from your perspective, is that then people are flowing into Asian markets or America as well, straight away?
0: There was the odd uh, value add of COVID in, in a contrarian way. People didn't leave the country. So for a period of time, we had a captive market. You had to really be committed in developing this kind of technology and leaving Australia. So I think keeping people within the boundary that is Australia's geography was unusually easy to do over that period of time. So I think otherwise we would have seen an exodus. And yeah. what I'm seeing now in terms of the regulatory frameworks and the appetite for this conversation, what's happening in other jurisdictions, I think now we're going to get that, that finally happened where people don't necessarily say Australia's a terrible place or well, New Zealand's a terrible place to do this, but there are better places and there's no longer the the restriction on leaving to investigate yeah. those things. So I think we had an opportunity. That window has now closed. And now the question is, can we on our merits um, justify people staying in Australia and New Zealand to develop this kind of technology?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's let's hope so, right? Uh, there certainly are a lot of merits in like the tourism brochure about like, uh, come here. But then I guess perhaps it's a little bit expensive nowadays for tourists to come here. Uh, just a, a sidebar, I heard that... Uh, here in New Zealand, you well, maybe you have a car rental this week. People are paying like $250 a day to rent a Corolla. And you think like if you're a tourist and you're coming and you're coming in here, or even if you're coming in to like go meet some people in in business, right? Like that's gonna give you a hit if you're spending $250 just to get a car rental.
0: I think the challenge that I see is that as far as the narratives are concerned, we're retreating to lazy narratives around this space. If everything's a scam, as you touched on, then that's an easy thing to categorize everything as because it's harder to say everything's not a scam if you take the time to identify that some of the things you're speaking to are romance scams or, or identity scams They're not crypto scams I mean crypto is an easier headline to click through on but when I talk to track and trace businesses and law enforcement they say to me the biggest challenge they have is cash because systems come into the system with cash or sorry scams come into the system with cash and they go out with cash and yep. in between whatever tools are available we utilized at the moment Crypto in a rising market is something that people can, can lean in on as a, as a mechanism for defrauding people. It's not the problem. It's a symptom of a, a lot of other problems. But that narrative, when you're looking at building businesses out in these jurisdictions, is problematic. Because if you go into any room, a, a room with VCs, a room with regulators, a room with industry and education, and you say, this is the nature of the product I'm building, and it has a distributed ledger component or Web3 component, it's almost invariably greeted with the scam narrative and the scam concern. And that feels to me like it is now taken hold again in a way that it really hadn't taken hold in a 12 to 18 months ago. There was a greater willingness to embrace this conversation. And now it feels like we're swinging back to those narratives because those narratives are pervasive when it comes to the way people are discussing things.
1: Yeah. And it's difficult to fight back with because you can easily typify something as a scam. You can print it. You can have, uh, have, have your soundbite. Um, But the the next question is, all right, well, you know, what is the problem or why is this a scam? And then you have to get into some of the details. And it's almost like the onus is on perhaps us in this room or similar minded folks to lay out why things are not a scam as opposed to the other way around where it's like, okay, well, maybe you can tell me perhaps why this is a scam. Um, So let's stay with this for, for a moment. Crypto is a scam. Let's, let's take this premise. Crypto is a scam. Do you agree that most of the activity in crypto could be classified as a scam?
0: I don't. Yeah. I think the reality of what I characterize as a scam for me, generally, scam does not include what much of the characterization of the industry is. If you don't make money, it's a scam. If there is volatility, it's a scam. I don't subscribe to that view. For me, when someone says scam, I think of the narrow definition that says this is something where someone is trying to defraud you or it's something illegal or otherwise. A scam that says I I failed to see a return is a different conversation. One of the things I push back on in rooms that involve startups in general is no one seeks... Uh, The same narrative in rooms with respect to AI or reg tech or cyber, a lot of businesses will fail. In fact, we know that from a startup perspective, almost all businesses that start will fail before they have any meaningful success. People don't accuse those startup founders of being scammers. They don't accuse them of of rugging them with their money. They say, here's an investment. It's It's a measured bet. We think you're the right person and we fail. Most VC funds, most investment funds are predicated on. A bet that says your business will succeed, and most don't. But that you don't tar that same sort of conversation. For me, you said the scam thing is is much more about what kind of things should we should we discern as being genuine scams. When you think about the track and trace kind of businesses that have emerged, the likes of Chainalysis and TerraM Labs and Elliptic, these businesses are all there to identify on chain activity that is viewed as nefarious, and they're not being heard. So I deal with those businesses a lot, and they say they have that similar challenge, which is notwithstanding the data that they bring to the conversation. They can't get past the narrative either. So it comes back to the education point. I used to feel like I needed to take everyone with me along the journey, whatever <laughs> that journey was. I don't have that sensation anymore. For me, it's here's enough information for you to form a view that part of this ecosystem is of interest in you. And if it isn't, that's okay. Stay where you are and, and let other people sort of carry
1: that torch forward. So what about a young team that can raise a bunch of money in crypto funds? Uh, at the start, perhaps... You see less of this, you know, today than you did two, three years ago, Mm -hmm. but can raise a bunch of money at the start. And then, you know, essentially like succumb to human emotion and not really pull through. And maybe they have a little bit too much cash and not produce a product. So when you look at it from the outside, you say, oh, that that token tanked. Uh, I lost my money in there. So you put this in the not scam category. Mm -hmm. And I guess I'm referring here to the broad bucket of ICOs, right, which we still have this hangover from. So the hangover is
0: absolutely still there. I describe it as the decomposing body in the corner. And it was never dealt with at the time. There was never a position put by governments in Australia or New Zealand around the world where they said, this is what this product falls into. This is the bucket. It's regulated, it's unregulated, it's a financial product, it's not a financial product. There was, there was no attempt at the time to clearly sort of separate it out as one or the other. And it was just left. And because I think the ebb and the flow of the ICO boom came and went, when, when interest, when people continue to build and money came back in the system, again, we're left with the same fundamental question, which is what's happening today. Yeah. I think to your point, I'll take the, the Web3 sort of analogy in the NFT one. Yeah. For me, I look at incentive alignments and incentive misalignment. If you're paying attention to what's happening in the NFT space at the moment, uh, the NFT community within Australia seems quite sad. And the, the sadness comes from the fact that they, they had access to magical internet money for a period of time. Yeah. Everyone was aping into these projects and it felt like every decision was a good one. What's left now is NFT projects that had the first sugar sort of hit that was, we issued this thing. People say we're part of this community, but there's an asterisk. It says we're part of this community because we think our incentives are aligned. Many of those incentives are financial. So then the question becomes, well, if it's no longer just going to uh, go to the moon, then what kind of community have you actually built? And I think that's where founders are really struggling at the moment. And they're decoupling. There's some recent conversations around a few different projects where they've said we're not really NFT projects, where. What we are is startups yeah. and scale-ups and, and much of the community will turn on them because they say, well, we participated on the understanding that this is the kind of project you were and that's something which people are learning a very difficult lesson with in the, in the short term. But again, it's, it has parallels to the way people invest in other categories as well. I think the, the ability of these products to become global ostensibly from, from minute one, it just adds an element which is very difficult for people to get their head around, very difficult for government to get their head around as well. It just can go from zero to a hundred in no time.
1: Even some of these uh, more famous or more valuable NFT projects that are surviving have started to narrow down their scope and lineate themselves. There's uh, one called uh, Doodles. I think they are turning into like uh, music media, uh, you know, going away from this idea of art and so on. And so, you know, they're still alive, they're still thriving. But I mean, your point about incentives is, is perfect because In these NFT communities, you know, a year ago, people were spending ETH, you know, as if they had bought it when it's $50 or $100. And one of my problems with the whole NFT community is that from the outside, you look at these projects and you look at like the price of entry and it can be quite high. not for all projects and there's certainly a wide variety but when you look at the ones that are on like the front page of openc or on the front page of the uh in, in the headlines you think gosh like two three four ten thousand dollars to get my ticket to join this community that's what that's one of my problems is that super high barrier to entry um my second my second problem with with nfts and you can comment on this because I, I know that you're sort of half into the nft space as well uh it, is that once you have a successful project, it seems to be there's a lot of dilution, and the way that you can cash in on round two is by doing like a slight variation on the same thing you did or on the first thing you did, um, and so from my perspective, and uh, I'm definitely a skeptic that this is how I see it, and so we've seen this with like everything that Yuga Labs has done, although they're still they're still killing it, right? And I, I look at it and I think it's just like derivatives uh, of the same. So I mean. I'm not sure. What are your comments on?
0: I think the network effect is important. I, I watch the Yuga stuff as well and I can say I don't have any NFTs of any value. I didn't ever ape into these sort of conversations. Yeah. I observe them and I'm fascinated to watch it. But I look at businesses like Yuga that have gone in, they've made some good decisions, They've built out community and they've continued to iterate on the product front. Um, whereas for most, to your point, they've just iterated on what is, you know, already out there, Yuga Labs equivalent. You know, there's a board ape, million board ape sort of knockoffs. They just haven't had the same, they haven't had the same traction. I go back a step and look at the marketplaces. So for me, one of the more interesting things is not just the flipping, the flipping of these sort of projects are recognised that sometimes people, they buy it mint, they they turn over the price, they say, look and look at me, I'm a genius, I just made a bunch of money. If you look at what's happening on the on the marketplace front, OpenSea built out very quickly at scale. And people were saying for a very short period yep. of time um, though they're, they're so far ahead of everybody else that no one will catch them except within about a minute. Uh, Magic Eden was another business that very quickly was diluting um, the, the volumes that uh, that Openset otherwise managed to get. And then before you before you knew it, and now blur is another one. Like the technology yep. that underpins the platforms themselves is being disrupted. So I'm looking at the platforms that are the marketplaces, which in a traditional sort of environment with Facebook or Twitter, Snapchat or otherwise, you know, once they have that critical mass, they're very difficult to displace. And then I'm watching these businesses which, having built scale, having been funded to an extraordinary degree, still can't survive the development of the technology, and then you watch things playing out simultaneously, like the war that was. Do you pay royalties? Yeah. And even that that says, well, our business model is predicated on the fact that we want to reward those that create these uh, these digital collectibles, and then someone else says, well, ours is cheaper, and then that challenges <laughs> the thesis that says we're here for the community and we want to build yeah. our networks and we want to reward artists, and then someone says, but you don't have to pay that, and you'll save two and a half, five and a half. Ten cents in the dollar. Suddenly, people migrate. That for me is a fascinating thing to observe from a distance.
1: Oh, we're also we're also damn fickle. Like the thing with the royalties, that that flipped so fast. Like royalties got cancelled. You know, like they like they said something they shouldn't have, and I I came into that and I I I do I did then and I still do think that royalties are like such an incredible use case of this technology that you know I didn't conceive of in the beginning, and I, I think that the idea that you can perhaps sustainably, but at least as an artist long-term down the road, you know, be able to still have a tie to that art. I mean, I think that's incredible. That's something that we don't, that we don't see anymore other than maybe, uh, you know, in web two, other than maybe people taking their branding with them, you know, but to have that hard coded royalty settled on chain, you want to buy it. Sure. A cut automatically goes to this address. Like, like we've never seen that before. And I think you sort of extend beyond a web three
0: environment. You look at businesses like Starkware. Starkware has been very well regarded for some of the technology they've been rolling out. And I think they've had a bit of a lead in the way they're doing things, the way they've marketed it, the way they've been funded. And that business relatively recently talked about the fact that they were going to open source their product. There's sort of a recognition for those that are authentic to the premise of this technology that if you try to build out a centralised version, you'll get so far. But at some point in time, you'll be overrun By the prospect that this goes back into the community. You look at projects or protocols like Ethereum and you look about all the private sort of the consortia approaches. You know, when I go back five or six years ago and IBM, as as a very obvious example, came out and said, we've got trade lens, we're worrying about the supply chain and the shipping industry. And they said, we've got all sorts of things we can build out. And all we need is these stakeholders to come together and we're going to align our interests. Those stakeholders are businesses that don't like to deal with anyone, but their own people, their own kind. So those businesses failed because they couldn't align themselves. And ultimately, the promise of the technology remains in that kind of segment, only in an environment where these are decentralized networks or distributed networks, where you can share the upside versus what's previously sort of happened. So again, I see these things that are, that are finding their way. Uh, supply chain is a classic one. I mentioned it two or three times today in the conversations I've had. Those that have had success because it feels like a very obvious Uh, in a use case, it's in plain sight. Those who come into this space will invariably say, I like smart contracts and I like supply chains as a use case. That's that's how I know someone's usually at the very beginning of this journey. (laughs) And the reality for me is when you talk about supply chains, supply chains are largely broken in the real world in many respects. So the notion that someone comes out and says, here's a tech stack that fixes supply chains is a very naive way of understanding how supply chains work versus coming and saying, "Here is a particular problem within a supply chain. We can we can deploy some technology that makes that problem better." That for me is where the businesses come out. When people talk to the killer use cases and the killer apps, yep. for me, it's fixing smaller problems. Uh, much a much more obvious path for people than coming in and saying, "We fix the problem of supply chains. We fix the problem of storage. We fix the problem of IoT devices." That it's it's too big for built out technologies and businesses let alone for a a nascent sort of technology stack that most people are rolling out in this space.
1: We uh, always have a few students in our blockchain class that are doing like a supply chain problem. So, uh, you know, popular with the kids these days is like verification of luxury goods or something like sneakers or something like this, Uh, right? And so the task is to go out and build a Web3 app and then, you know, tell us how you did it. What were the problems? And, uh, you know, sounds awesome. Let's go do it. And then, you know, they always come back and they're like, uh, what, what do you think of this? And I'm like, well, well, yeah, how do you know that that QR code was made by me or was, was made by this luxury goods provider, was made by Nike or whatever. Um, so with supply chains, do you think they're going to be disrupted or maybe I'm behind here? Have they already been disrupted by this? Uh, uh, is, you know, putting your supply tracking issues on a blockchain, is that actually going to help? I, th- I think... The most obvious use case, which isn't as
0: obvious and not as interesting as provenance, because provenance is often where people speak to supply chain and and blockchain sort of coming together. Well, are your customers willing to pay for the privilege of understanding what the supply chain looks like? That's problematic because you kind of say, well, let, let's get to the end user use case. You're going to scan a barcode. The barcode will identify all these factories. What are you going to do? You're going to go identify what these factories produced and, and what conditions yeah, yeah. and then how the process was verified. It'll come through some standard which you've never heard of, which attest to the fact that they did all the right things. That's one part of it. It's part of the complexity of the provenance story. People still need to be willing to pay. You know, the, there's lots of conversations about Apple products as an example. And they say maybe you should onshore the building of Apple products in the US. You go, well, are you willing to pay $400 more for a phone? Because if you are... Let's do that. But most people would prefer a $400 cheaper fund. Is, is that a real
1: number? I would have thought it's more. Oh,
0: I, th- I think it was something I heard the other day. Okay. Where someone <laughs> talked about that and said, I think they were just talking about that as a number. Would that be enough to change your buying preference? If right, you said, okay. You know, this is one that's produced in the US or produced in Australia, but it's going to cost you $400 more than one that was produced in another country. Would you do it? Most people would defer to the economic incentive yeah. that says, I'm going I'm to go for the $400 cheaper version. I think the more short-term compelling one, which is less interesting, but more reflective of incentives again. Um, are things like uh, finance and trade finance and un, uh, unbuckling the systems that are payments that are further uh, along or further behind in the, uh, in the supply chain. that says downstream, we know there's money coming. It tends to be a bottleneck. Businesses will sit there and they'll wait 120 or 180 days or 360 days to be paid. What if we can give you some transparency that allows you to create a market there or to be paid a little bit faster? I think money is ultimately the grease uh, of the wheel for most of these projects, which is why I think you're seeing now a reorientation towards payments networks. So yeah. I think, you know, the likes of the MasterCards and the Visas and the businesses, where people say, we, don't, we need to disrupt these businesses. We don't need them involved. They're now looking at this tech stack as an opportunity to improve their processes. So they're also incentivized to say, this is something we should be investigating. That's, that's money making the world go around.
1: Well, I love it. It's like, you know, imagine if there was this decentralised network that had sort of value transfer as its core, uh, we could do some cool things um so let's pivot back a little bit to nfts tell me about nft fest oz you mentioned that uh nfts were a little bit sad i want you to tell me more about this uh because when i saw from the outside looking in this conference you put together uh mid last year late last year was it um i mean it looked like a pretty neat thing and i look forward to seeing more of it so tell us what you're doing with that
0: well, doing nothing with it is the answer. Okay. I mean, the thing that I like to do, and, and Rochelle, who's in the room with us at the moment, was one of the co-founders of the NFT Fest concept. As a subject matter, it generates interest. And I think it allows you to then bring in other parts of the conversation. So my interest wasn't the purist that said, I believe in, in flipping JPEGs and it's the it's the future of everything I do. What I like is what are the legal implications of it? What are, the, what are the Web 2.0 versions of this as well as the Web 3.0? How is it treated from a regulatory perspective? So it is... An exercise in upskilling people around the space in general, because it's much easier for people to get their head around the use case that is a digital collectible or something they can store on their phone and show other people. So it was a very good onboarding a tool. The, the sequencing for us was, I had a sense that there weren't a lot of positive stories to come out of the ecosystem at the back end of last year. It was just okay. a gut feel that said, I don't think people will talk about uh, this space in, in any sort of light that moves the conversation forward. So. Off a very short run-up between myself, Rochelle and, and Greg Akeford, we said, why don't we run an event? And running events is something we think we do and have done well. Yeah. It's a terrible way to spend your time. We we rarely <laughs> because the bit that's makes the, the bit that makes the event a good event is not what makes it a good commercial event. In you know, generally speaking, the curation of the content which runs counter to the the maximum extractable value from event organized perspective they go in opposite directions so you know from our perspective it was who are the best people to represent this conversation and start with that as the as the kernel of it and then build it out and that ended up turning into 150 ish i think 120 to 150 speakers who all brought a domain experience. Some were the true believers that were just there in the digital arts sense. Some were the lawyers. Some were the regulators. Yep. We had traditional finance businesses that showed up as well. I think the National Australia Bank, which you wouldn't naturally ascribe any interest in this sort of subject matter, were very happy to sit on the stage and talk about what they understood to be the development of this kind of ecosystem. So that was the reason we brought it all together. Um, the notion that it's sad is part of, the, part of the observation I've had of that ecosystem. It's, it's akin to the ecosystems that have come before. Those who are early adopters of technology have come in and said, great, this fixes so many things. This is the future of all we should do. And then you tend to uh, come up against those that say, we kind of like the existing system, or we don't like your system any more than we like our own. And then then you get that pushback. I think the ecosystem is now finding itself in that stage. So I watched it with the technology at sort of first instance. I've watched it in spaces like the gaming space. You know, there are so many people in the gaming space who hate, and I deliberately use the word hate,
1: hate yeah, yeah, yeah. the
0: blockchain crypto digital asset part oh, of it and, and the resistance is extraordinary. So I've now watched those who are in the NFT space who have said this is a great way to reward artists, this is a great way to build our marketplaces, we can't wait till everybody embraces this with us. So I think they've now uh, entered into that trough of disillusionment that says there is no obvious reason why people should adopt this to a timeline that uh, otherwise those who had sort of committed themselves to the space would like and it becomes that very difficult challenge of how do you earn a living in a very functional way in this in this space. And we've seen a lot of the the projects that had a lot of early success that have, in my mind, the way I've characterized it is they thought they'd broken through the atmosphere, except there's not a lot of oxygen once you get through the atmosphere. And the reality for them is they might not be able to sustain the project. So they come back to much more conventional connections, which invariably involves Web 2.0 sort of businesses or Web 2.5 businesses, where they're trying to say, let's come back and build enough momentum to break out of this thing and really sort of push out. So that was the reason we did it at this point in time. Rochelle and I have handed it back over to Greg, and we said, listen, you should do this bit. Uh, No plan on our part to do another NFT-fest thing. So it was fit for purpose, Jeff, is the way I'd characterise it. Uh, Greg, I follow
1: him on Twitter. Do you know his Twitter handle off the top of your head? Uh, It's
0: at Greg Oakford.
1: Greg Alford, yeah, I think he's a moonbird. Uh, so yeah. he, he's a
0: moonbird. He is a moonbird. And he's, he was one that really, I think the language of, he was rubbing his face in it, Jeff. Like, you know, when he had his moment, which I think relates to NBA Top Shots, and he, he shows me a screen grab of a yeah. message that I sent him and I said, this might be of interest. And and you can he literally had that light bulb moment where he just said, this is the future of a lot of things. And as a marketer, he was working at Golf Australia. He saw the opportunity for community the opportunity for ticketing and all these use cases, which would naturally make his life easier as a marketer, and he dove straight into that. But that's one of the challenges a lot of marketers are finding is uh, observing the opportunity for ticketing or, or community or fan engagement, and then deploying technology that reflects that in this world. It's a very difficult thing to do, given how many people you need to navigate through and around yeah. to, to convince that it's something they should be investing CapEx on.
1: Um, you've got some marketing experience from a past life, is, is that right? Uh, accidentally. Ac- yes. Accidentally. Um does crypto have a marketing problem? And uh, presumably, does crypto have a marketing problem? And from a marketing perspective, right, uh, you know, does, does this even matter? Like you go to something like any NFT Fest and Greg is just going, going nuts. All these like minded people coming together, right? And I think you see that at a lot of crypto events. But obviously, crypto events are just a small niche corner of the world.
0: I don't think there's a do-over available, Jeff. One of the challenges for most people is they say the language doesn't fit. So it'd be better if we if we called it this or if we described it as okay. this. You don't get that opportunity. No one says, by the way, we don't like the fact it was called the World Wide Web until there's some other version. We just call it the internet now. But for a period of time, it was www. People didn't get together and make a decision that as of this day, we're going to call it something else. So when it comes to NFTs, as an example, that people say there's a lot of baggage in relation to characterization as an NFT. It's like, well, that's what it's called at the moment. And if you call it a digital collectible, it's something very different to an NFT potentially. Yep. So we're not coming together and people will say this to me often in, in amongst the many, many conversations I'm having. They said, we should do this. I said, who is this we you speak of? Because there is no round table where we will arbitrarily determine that this language no longer serves us. So we're going to change it. So I think you're stuck with some of these things until you're no longer stuck with them. We can't otherwise discern the difference. For me, it's it's much more about providing enough information where people can consider what version of this this topic they do or don't like. You know, the one of the gags I always say to people is the notion that a rising tide lifts all boats. And if, if those uh, who are the true believers in the space are sort of a committed to that position, the problem I have for them is, I said, not everyone has a boat. Okay. So the reality wow. here is it's great if it, if it lifts yeah. all these boats, but if you don't have a boat, you're not going anywhere. And that's the challenge of the of the rooms that we find ourselves in. Again, I'm not there to convince anyone. I'm just doing to say there's some water. You can buy a boat. There's the tide. It might go up. What do you What do you want to do? So I think that's the marketer in me doesn't feel like. And I used to say this in all the traditional stuff that I used to do in the marketing sense. The internet will determine whether you're a success or a failure. You know, people used to post all sorts of content and they'd spend all this time coming up with it and they put it on the internet and no one cared. I said the internet's right because just because you think it's interesting, if the internet has determined it isn't. The internet is the great arbiter of these things. And I see the same sort of analogous outcomes here. If, if you think this is a particular thing and the internet is taking another way, then do what you can to sort of change it. But ultimately recognise that the market is moving in different directions and the ability to just stop them is not available to marketers because uh, there's a lot of really average marketers out there, Jeff. I was a pretty average marketer at various points in time. And the, uh, the reality is it just, it has a natural momentum. Um, so go with where the opportunity is and find good people. For me, it's much more about finding people who can articulate their position And one of the challenges around the space, and this is a good thing for me, it shows a greater maturing of the conversations, is those who are anti the space in a general sort of sense become more reliant on generalities. They'll talk about blockchain people. And I'll always say, who are these people that you are referencing? Because I speak to... Uh, lawyers, VC people, students, I speak to devs. Yeah, who are the blockchain people? We don't travel around in a marauding pack looking to influence these rooms. But it's easier when you say everything's a scam and blockchain people and crypto people. And I've taken people to task on Twitter a variety of times, people who are sophisticated in and lots of understandings they have around business, but when they categorize the space, they job lot everybody. And, and and I'm yet to find an industry that is well characterized when you say everybody is dot, dot, dot. So that's a, that's a different approach for me in the way I've sort of done things in the last few years. Well,
1: I'll tell you who the blockchain people are. They're, uh, they're tech bros that all have a boat <laughs> and they all have at least one ETH and they all they all have some NFT project that they, they feel rich from, but uh, they're not really rich. Je- so. Jeff,
0: let me, let me compare <laughs> and contrast. You go, that view is absolutely right. Okay, let me zoom out. I'm, I'm here in New Zealand for four and a half days. I'm talking to banks, I'm talking to associations that represent uh, fintech and tech uh, and payments. Um, I'm speaking to VCs. I'm speaking to, to builders across the space, uh, payments businesses, um, the New Zealand Stock Exchange, speaking to all these businesses. They have some interest in this space and there are advocates and champions and some people that have just a curiosity that reflect this. I, I see that conversation in all rooms. It it has been the case often in academic institutions too. When I've dealt with a lot of the universities, they keep looking for the blockchain thing. Where's the blockchain thing? It's like it's the centre of the conversation. And invariably for me, it's rarely the centre of the conversation. It might just be an issue related to identity. It might be an issue in relation to data storage. It might be an issue related to payments. It's not usually the centre of the conversation, but everyone looks at it in a monolithic sort of a way. So, yeah, I I see people's interest in this space on that spectrum that I described earlier that says the crypto libertarians or process improving traditional businesses, I, I kind of see, a, I see a flavor that uh, that can uh, be
1: accommodated in any one of those realms. Let's button up our shirts a little bit here and go with uh, the marginal improvement of businesses over time and the R word, which is regulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mentioned a few times already, and certainly, you know, in the blockchain meetings that I'm a part of, not, not with the student side of things, uh, but the more professional side of things, this word tends to come up. We're presently going through putting together submissions to give to the Reserve Bank of New Zealand on their future of money, um, future of private money position paper that they've issued. Um, So they're taking comments right now, and that closes probably at the end of this month. We're in March right now. Um, So in terms of regulation, myself as an outsider, definitely don't really even know where to start with this. Um, My question to begin with is, what can be done? So I look at this and I think, great, we don't need regulation because I can already use Bitcoin. I can already use Ethereum. I can already do all of these things with my internet infrastructure and and so on and so forth. Um, So for regulation in crypto, I think we've seen a massive breakdown lately in America. So maybe that's not the best place to look, but like, I guess, where's the low hanging fruit and what is it that needs to be done for regulation?
0: It's funny, the subject matter that we touched upon before at the uh, the micro level applies to the macro level. This is an incentive game. Jurisdictions are approaching things very differently. Within jurisdictions, there are all sorts of different regulators that all have very different aims and purposes that they're there to serve. The complexity of the regulatory uh, framework, fragmented to the extreme, is crazy. Like I speak to a lot of really smart lawyers, and the lawyers rarely have anything other than a 180 degree sort of view at best, because they're, they're oblivious to the other 180 degrees. They're too busy because there's so much complexity in the area they're looking at. Within Australia, as we talked about before, on the, when the ICO boom was sort of happening, there wasn't any guidance given in any sort of meaningful way. And it's been pretty light ever since, which is reflective of what's happened all around the world as well. Um, right now, there's a very distinct push to try to give some shape to the regulatory frameworks. A lot of it is driven by retail and consumer protections as the primary focus. So yeah. the recognition that when people lose money, they look to government to, uh, to remedy the fact that they lost money. When, when they've made some money, they think they're very smart. And you've got to go at the moment, clearly in the environment where lots of people have lost money and the things they invested in. So the noise around consumer protection has been, has been at fever pitch. And so governments around the world are saying, well, we can deal with that bit. And then we carve off some of these other use cases for sophisticated investors or institutions And so there is this very um, significant demarcation of of these two topics, because it also speaks to the fact that maybe opportunity won't be provided to one part versus the other. We're saying the people that we trust as serious business people and people who understand the implications of money, who have already accumulated assets, let's continue to, to help them in that regard because they understand the implications, but we're going to protect these other people. That's a problem. But there's a clear divide in that subject matter. And the language around it has changed. Uh, locally, and it's changed regionally as well. As an example, with Singapore, we we often talk about they're they're a much faster mover than we are with respect to investment in this technology. They've changed significantly their language around this, where they're now talking about consumer protections being one part of the conversation, very deliberately so. They're trying to dull interest in retail participation through things like advertising bans. At the same time, they're rolling out a much more prolific and much more consistent support for digital assets and central bank digital currencies and stable coins. That, that's what's happening around the world at the moment. So depending on what part of the conversation you're sitting in, you're, you're going to find more onerous obligations that probably impede the individual's ability to participate and, and probably a, a greater sense of certainty around the things that will allow businesses to be built out that don't impact consumers at the coalface. So yeah, the tapestry is, is crazy. Yep. But at the moment, the United States is most obviously uh, being uh, viewed as being very very much, you know, uh, from the perspective of the SEC, following regula- regulation by enforcement, and so they're saying these are projects that should fit within the existing regulatory framework. More visibly than anywhere else in the in Europe, uh, the markets in crypto assets, MiCA, is a regulatory framework that's being developed, which is a more nuanced view, slow moving, very comprehensive, and when it snaps into place, it'll impact all of the EU members. They're kind of polar opposites. One, a steady as she goes, build it out, try to cross T's and dot I's. And in the US, a much more aggressive path. And then you've got in Asia, economies that will benefit more from moving more quickly have generally been more open to this technology being adopted. So all these things are yep. about incentives. As an extreme example, um, the head of the Bank of International Settlements, uh, only a matter of a week or two back, was talking about the fact that he liked the Technology opportunity and the efficiency improvements that came from a global ledger that banks could rely upon to settle transactions. And he also made the point that he doesn't like Bitcoin and any speculative assets. So yep. th- that again, the decoupling that says that technology that gave rise to the opportunity for this sort of thing, we like the technology. We just don't like the Bitcoin version of it. And and that that is something I think we'll see will accelerate over the course of the next sort of six and twelve. Months. There is a thesis at the moment that is when it comes to the, the regulatory side that pertains to retail and consumer protections, that it'll largely be hands off, that they'll say it already can be dealt with within existing regulatory frameworks. They're duller instruments for dealing with this, they are much more akin to bans or consumer protections yeah. that come from more fines, more penalties. Versus the other side, which uh, will be reflected in the development of regulations around things like stable coins and central bank digital currencies, where the parties are known parties to governments and to regulators around the world. And they say, you're already operating within a regulatory environment. So we will give you guardrails and we'll, we'll point you towards the direction that we think this technology should be utilised. So happening at a frighteningly fast pace. So as much as people think that regulation is yeah. happening slowly, my experience is I've never seen a coordination like it. It's not a local level, it's an international level. So there's a real move towards it because in my mind, the technology works, which again runs counter to the narrative. The narrative is this technology doesn't work, it's too slow, it's too expensive. Governments around the world are moving as quickly as they can to constrain some of the implications of this technology. So that's that's a sign that this is something that uh, that is coming and it's coming really quickly.
1: You mentioned Singapore there, right? Um, so I didn't realise that they had or they are going to look into banning advertising or limiting or restricting advertising and, you know, off the top of my head, this is, this is excellent. Let's do it. Right. Because for the last, uh, not the last few months, but for the last year, we've seen FTX everywhere worldwide Mm -hmm. with their logo, uh, on international sports teams, on, uh, television that gets, gets broadcast all around the world. Right. And so, you know, something like that really definitely led people, uh, to believe that especially since there was an FTX U.S. entity, you know, led people to believe that there was regular consumer protections there that actually it turned out, you know, weren't available for, for other reasons. Um, the, other, the other piece about Singapore, right, they have a similar population to New Zealand, although they are geographically not, not as blessed as we are here. Um, but they have this like uh, sandbox where businesses can sort of have uh, relaxed regulation to get their business up, up up and off the ground and then later on down the track have to perhaps fall in line you know if they're successful or if they start to scale up. Um, so like can't we just copy and paste some of that stuff into Australia and New Zealand and help out our crypto businesses that are you know struggling to even get bank accounts? Let's start with the
0: FTX bit I mean the reality of the FTX situation is, uh, all those allegations as they're playing out and some of the the ex-employees are affirming this, it, it's just a plain old fashioned fraud, Jeff. I mean, the problem there, it's not the flavour of the technology. The reality here is it looks like yeah. they were commingling funds and they were using things for purposes they shouldn't have. The question is, how is that and how did that happen? And one of the the issues in the US where they've talked about this more visibly is uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was courting regulators. He was courting government. He was meeting, he was making it was happening on their watch. And so one of the challenges now is how do you deal with that problem? Well, the question, if we go back a year or two, was why well, wasn't it dealt with at the time? Why weren't the right yeah. questions asked? This thing has imploded and these are the implications. The technology itself was what? The technology was, it was the selling of these tokens or, or uh, you know, when you talk about what the market was, by those, uh, the reckonings of those who actually used FTX as a platform it was a good platform. It ran twenty four seven, and it was it was cheap and fast. And so that bit that was bit was functionally working. The things that came out of it, um, those sorts of conversations needed to be had and continue to need to be had. Very difficult to get in a room with regulators and to talk about this subject matter. That coordination is still a very difficult thing to do. And you know, for a number of years, I was the CEO of Blockchain Australia. And I knocked on many, many more doors than were answered when it came to a conversation about, can we talk about what this regulation looks like? Can you talk about what these sort of concerns are? In jurisdictions like Singapore, I think the reality there is, as you've observed, they're not as naturally blessed. So they need to move forward in in these sort of digital first conversations. I was parted to a, uh, to a delegation that came out of Singapore and came into Australia, and they were, they were talking okay. to Australian businesses about... Uh, what this ecosystem looked like, they were—they had a voracious desire to understand what the digital assets, broadly defined, opportunities were. And we didn't have a lot to give them back because we're too used to saying this is what payments look like, this is the 2.0 sort of version of this technology, this is what a SaaS model looks like. There wasn't a lot of conversation. They—they they were sort of saying we thought there would be more in relation to digital asset, but because they don't have the natural advantages that are our respective uh, geographies, the cut and paste. There's the issue of tech neutrality. Like I, I often touch on it. If you talk to most governments around the world and most regulators, they'll speak to the concept of being tech neutral. And my position generally is you can't be neutral to technology you don't understand or that you don't like. So the question is, do you understand it? And 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 what do you think of it? And then you can apply a standard of tech neutrality. But if you speak to most people across government, and this is not a a, a reflection on them in any negative way, everyone has enough on their plate. So when you ask someone... What do you think about blockchain technology and what's your view on layer one and layer two and scaling solutions? And how do you find these privacy uh, enabling um, uh, applications? The answer is I, I don't know, I've not read anything. So you've got this dilemma, which is how can you be neutral and adopt forward leaning policies that will embrace and encourage this kind of technology? It's almost impossible to do these
1: solutions. What's a positive advantage of tech neutrality, as you've just discussed?
0: The, po- the, the positive theory is you should be agnostic to um, a lot of the elements here. You should you should start with an open mind about what this potentially is. If it works and it serves the purpose that it's there to serve, then you should say we're willing to sort of do okay. it. But if you walk into the average room and say this is a product that is a cryptocurrency or a blockchain technology, the the general reaction would be we don't like it. That's not neutrality. That that is that is a view that is very so difficult maybe- to resist.
1: Maybe something like solar panels or like some tech-like?
0: AI, I'll give you AI as an example. I not understand okay. the fact that there is, a, there is a characterization that says
1: the AI that's going to kill us all okay. versus
0: the AI that creates better versions of images. You don't have that same negativity, although there are concerns about how you potentially constrain this at some point in time. You can, you can walk into a room and say, I have an AI tool, and people don't, people don't say, we think AI might kill us, so we're not inclined to invest in this technology. So it's a much easier case to make in other technologies.
1: But you do have to fight back when people say, oh, you've got Bitcoin, you must have purchased illegal goods and or be laundering your family's fortune. That's exactly right, Jeff. I mean, that challenge
0: there, and this come back to the track and trace businesses, when they talk about nefarious activity, and, and the data that they provide is not all nefarious actors. They're just saying, when they talk about sort of on-chain activity, which they're identifying, and remembering those track and trace businesses serve two masters. One of them is they, they need to have good relationships with the businesses that are transacting on these chains with exchanges and the like. But they also have a law enforcement role. So, they, you know, they're, if they're too skewed to one or the other, they don't have a very good business. So they're a little bit like real estate agents that are trying to sell your house and they're trying to lease you the house as well. Um, you know, the buy and the sell and the lease, there, there are conflicts there. They need to manage yeah. those things to maintain the business. A success. That's that's what track and trace businesses are doing as well. But when they talk about on-chain activity, it's usually, and I think the most recent guide that Chainalysis came out with, I think it was again less than one percent of transactions in the way that they've characterised them, yep. have have an nefarious sort of a source, um, which does include all sorts of money laundering bits and pieces. But that number doesn't resonate. I mean, I was in a I was in a, uh, a conversation a little while back where I talked about the fact that according to those metrics, it was you know one percent or less than one percent, and the response. From someone sitting on a panel with me was yeah, but 100% of that one percent is bad actors. I said yeah, 100% of one percent. It's like yeah, 100% that's what of it means. And so that was <laughs> we ended this circular conversation a I minute. Mean, I just scratched right. my head thinking where are we at? So the reality of, of of that side for me is very difficult to be tech neutral, which which is why many of the conversations I have behind closed doors, I encourage people to have them in open environments. We should get academics to sit around tables with those who are developing things, with payments people, with regulators. It's just a very difficult thing. Um, for people to do, uh, they're just not used to. We're not used to sharing an underrepresentation in terms of knowledge of the space. Yeah, you know, very difficult to say to a you know, an ASX listed top 100 business or an NZX top 100 listed business. Come in the room and identify for people that you have knowledge gaps. You know, you're paying people a lot of money to tell you they know enough about everything and they're across all these issues. Very difficult to draw them into a public environment and have them acknowledge that this is not tech they they understand um, and they'll need more time to develop it. Those things run counter to what we would hope these conversations look like.
1: I want to bring up payments here. Um, I think Australia has about 72 stable coins. Uh, 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 I think there's at least like eight or nine or, t- or, or, or 10 of them. And you mentioned the uh, NAB, perhaps you mentioned that one earlier. Um, so why do we have so many stable coins and like, are they going to solve payments? Are, are payments, ever, you know, for uh, a merchant that's paying four or 5% to some card provider, are payments ever going to ease that burden on them?
0: Yeah, my, my thesis, there are three types of these conversations that are usually bunched together, there's wholesale, CBDCs. Um, there are retail CBDCs in the other end of the conversation, and stable coins live as a subject matter in between. Uh, there's a great fear in governments around the world that if they roll out retail CBDCs, they uh, create problems for the existing banking infrastructure. So the, the, the middleware, in some respects, is likely to be stable coins. You know, it's likely to be fiat backed uh, Stable coins, they will be representative of the retail component, which leaves businesses uh, with the... Oh, sorry, leaves government with the wholesale stuff to make sure that they can deal with things like gross um, settlement. I think that's where the world is likely to go. And I think in jurisdictions like New Zealand, where there might be more of an incentive for the retail side, I think the pressure will be to defer to existing traditional financial service businesses, which are regulated, and regulate them with this new technology rather than try to deploy that. I think that's akin to what's happening in the payment space as well. And the ability to create new networks, something like the Lightning Network or payment rails that live outside of um, the traditional rails, much harder for governments um, to enable that sort of technology for fear of the implications that are currently unknown. So they're likely to gravitate towards traditional financial service businesses to deploy in the payment space as well.
1: Yeah, I guess you'd really be acknowledging that, uh, you know, in the name of tech neutrality, if you are enabling transfer on a public network like Bitcoin or, or Ethereum, you're really, you know, acknowledging that it can do what you've always said your own systems are, are better at. Um, plus perhaps maybe adding complexity if you think about having to uh, figure Funnel funds, collect taxes, do things, do things like this. Um, keep keep track of everyone. Keep, make sure everyone's everyone's doing what they're after.
0: People don't want to cede control, Jeff. I mean, the reality here is you talk about permission networks, and and a lot of the experiments have failed. But the reason why people will continue to pursue them is that you maintain control of the network versus ceding to a settlement layer like Ethereum. You talk about L ones as the settlement layer. Once you've done that, you've kind of ceded that that function to someone else. Very difficult for for sovereign. Uh, governments around the world to say this is something we're comfortable doing. They might they might chip away at it. Much easier for private enterprises to do that because the government has not necessarily had to cede control in order to allow the facilitation of payments on on something that is not their own infrastructure.
1: I think I, I think that's fine. I, I'm not of the viewpoint that says that there has to be one network that eats everything. You know, uh, that says that there can only be one global Bitcoin and uh, you know who who cares what the value is. It, it's massive by the time you run those numbers. But I don't see it playing out that way. I think there's too many conflicting interests, too many conflicting incentives. Uh, The way I see it happening is that New Zealand's going to have one, Australia's going to have one. Uh, The banks are going to have their own, because why not? Uh, You know, Facebook, they're eventually going to get their coin. Absolutely. You know, uh, Walmart, they're going to get their coin as well to handle their transactions. So that's kind of how I see it happening. Um, I'll have my coin just between me and my students. uh, But of course, I can already have that. Uh, So I I'm a multi-coin future outlook type of guy. I
0: think it's, it's a nice world to hope we get to. I think the reality here is a uh, fit for purpose, uh, lots of options. I also see and have said for a number of years that I see regulation moving towards the use of blunter and blunter tools to deal with more and more sophisticated technology. So when in doubt and when, in ha- when, when having to go through this very nuanced process of determining good, bad or indifferent, easiest to say we're going to blanket these things so my concern is probably that we move towards a, a much narrower view of the world rather than saying let's build these things out and and the products that that serve the use cases better will survive versus narrowing the channel that says these are businesses that can be developed in this uh, in this environment
1: you um, mentioned earlier about blockchain Australia you used to have the top seat over there and uh, so now that you've come to baby bro here in New Zealand can you uh, give us some advice for how to uh, run a successful blockchain uh, organization and uh, maybe like a lesson or two of something that if you did it again, you would not want to do the same way.
0: Jeff, I took on the role because in in many respects, no one thought it was worth doing. Yeah. So a very different circumstance to where I find myself now. People didn't have an interest in the space. They didn't think it was going to amount to anything. Membership was hard to get. I was I was left effectively unfettered for at least the first year. Um, some success that I had after the first year drew attention in, and and ultimately when I handed it back after two years, and everyone was surprised, it was record membership and lots of attention, <laughs> and 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 I said, now I'm giving it back, and they said, but it can be better. I said the challenge for me was not making it better from what it was two years after I started. The challenge was giving people some voice, having an impact when no one cared, and so uh, the thing that's reflected. In what I'm doing today outside of the role, a lot of the conversations are exactly the same as they were within the role. I I chat to a lot of people about their respective positions. Um, You really do need to have a lot of conversations with people as opposed to at. People and I think usually when people are given a platform, they they talk at people and they say, "Here's what you need to know," and then they go. Yeah, back yeah. To
1: here's them. my presentation. Yeah, this is how it is. Yeah, and my, my
0: my sort of view of this has been, um, I've always said I'm outbound, not inbound. I don't wait for messages and conversations to come to me. I I go to those conversations. So I think that that worked, but it's an unsustainable thing to do. I mean, it was literally thousands of conversations. Yeah. I, I made a point that I was going to speak to a thousand people in the first hundred days. Um, in, in groups of one and two, and managed to do that, and then that cadence sort of continued for two years. So it's an extraordinary number of people to speak to, super interesting. But asking someone to do that for three, four, and five years is just is, is too much.
1: And um, oh, I mean, all those meetings must have paid off. Uh, they realized that nobody else could keep up that pace when, <laughs> when you said you're going to step down. Um, Coming up to another time here, are you up for some rapid fire?
0: Uh, I've got to go. You've got to go. I've got, I've got to, we've got to run. A, the, i said, happy to do the rapid fire if anything comes in and not going to have another conversation. Sorry, we're meant to be back at PwC in five minutes.
1: That's all right then. Thanks for coming out, Steve. <laughs> appreciate, the t- <laughs> appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, folks. Look out for the next episode of the Blockchain New Zealand podcast, probably in the same spot you found this one. Cheers. I see you just like taking lots of pictures, having lots of coffee, doing lots of meetings. I'd be like, what does this guy do? <laughs> that, that's
0: what he okay. does. Can I tell you, This is the tip of the iceberg. I think today seven meetings.